0: Our guest tonight is a leading figure in the American security establishment, one might call it. Graham Allison is a former assistant secretary of defense. He served uh, in that capacity at the Pentagon for the first uh, term of the Clinton presidency. He is the director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. Indeed, he was the founding dean of the Kennedy School at Harvard, and his new book is titled Nuclear Terrorism, The Ultimate Preventable Catastrophe. I hope it's preventable, but Graham, if you'll allow me after I make clear
1: that you are here, good evening. Thank you very much, Mel, for having me, and it's a pleasure to be in Chicago.
0: You are indeed here, and I want to quote from your book uh, a quotation that you, in turn, draw from Warren Buffett. Uh, Let me read this. The world's most successful investor is also a legendary odds maker in pricing insurance policies for unlikely but catastrophic events like earthquakes. Warren Buffett has described a nuclear terrorist attack as, quote, the ultimate depressing thing. It will happen. It's inevitable. I don't see any way that it won't happen, end quote. Given the number of actors with serious intent, the accessibility of weapons, or nuclear materials from which elementary weapons could be constructed, and the almost limitless ways in which terrorists could smuggle a weapon through American borders, a betting person would have to go with Buffett. In my own considered judgment, on the current path, a nuclear terrorist attack on America in the decade ahead is more likely than not. So say you.
1: Well, that's a a chilling uh, paragraph, but it is one that I... uh wrote, uh, not for the purpose of being alarmist, but to try to, I think, say what is true with respect to a, a, a grave and imminent danger for Americans today. I can visualize, and I think, actually, after one finishes part one of the book, an ordinary reader should be able to visualize mm-hmm. a nuclear bomb. Uh, exploded by somebody like Osama bin Laden in a city like Chicago or Boston or Washington Mm -hmm. with consequences that Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody can quite, any of us wrap our heads all the way around, but which you can physically describe it in fine detail. Again, I quote you back to yourself from the
0: first chapter of your book and speaking of what would happen in Chicago. If a 10-kiloton bomb were exploded, and it doesn't take a a missile to get it here, it can come out of a suitcase, so to speak, if it were exploded, say, in the loop in Chicago. An explosion at the Sears Tower in Chicago, you say, would cause everything from the Navy Pier to the Eisenhower Expressway to disappear. The United Center and all of Grant Park would be destroyed. The firestorm would approach both Comiskey Park and Wrigley Field. And the further consequences beyond that moment of explosion would be what?
1: Well, you would have uh, uh, the fires that would rage, depending on the winds, that could carry out to uh, now further distances. So we're already out to past the mile, where buildings look like the federal office building in Oklahoma City from ground zero, but then fires after that, and then radioactive fallout that would end up having uh, some rather very serious consequences for people in the shorter run. and. Other radioactive fallout that would affect people's probabilities of cancer or leukemia, especially for children, over the, infra- the longer run. And the infrastructure would be totally disrupted. The hospitals would be
0: so overwhelmed that they yeah. couldn't really function.
1: Right. And psychologically, again, this is uh, used to be called. Uh, you and I are old enough to remember mm-hmm. thinking about the unthinkable when we thought about a genuinely a nuclear war. This would, this would, psychologically, if you ask what would this mean for the country, what would it mean for oneself as you try to think about what matters, I mean, basically, after the first nuclear bomb goes off in an American city, which I do believe is going to happen if we just keep doing what we're doing today. That's not the main message of the book, but if we just keep doing what we're doing. But after such a thing happens, this will, I think, have a I mean, it's the only really only thing I can imagine that will change America as we understand what is America now
0: We know of Al Qaeda and that's not the only group we have to worry about We know of Al Qaeda and of Osama bin Laden and those around him that they are murderous Bastards and they'd like to do considerable damage to us. They have done considerable damage to us But I truly had never encountered the quotation before, that I find in your book, by one of his close associates, who says that their ambition is to kill four million Americans, including two million children, if they can.
1: Absolutely. This, is, is, a, this is a fellow who is the official press spokesman for Osama bin Laden, a guy named Abu Ghayth. He's on the lamb as well as Osama, uh, but uh, several months after the 9-11 attack, he put up on their website this rather chilling uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, proposition that their goal is to, quote, kill four million Americans, including two million children, and to maim an equivalent number. Now, I actually wrote about this in the book. I studied this you know passage from him uh, with some care, but I never quite got the children component of it. Now, what is four million the answer to? In his logic, four million is the answer to, as he explains, the number of deaths and injuries that need to be caused to the Americans to balance the scales of justice for the Muslims who have been killed and injured by what they call the Jewish Christian Crusaders, by which they mean Israel and the United States. And he then goes in this rather fascinating, if grotesque, uh, calculus in which he goes through the different battles or or encounters. So here's Janine, here's Shatila, here is the sanctions against uh, Iraq, and does a body count from his perspective of how many Muslims were killed and injured. And he says, then he racks, up the, racks it up and says, this totals four million. So that's what we need to do.
0: You also state as an elementary principle uh, early in the book that all you need to develop a nuclear weapon is a fissionable material. Uh, the expertise required to then fabricate a bomb that will utilize that fissile material and produce uh, nuclear explosion uh, is available to just about any terrorist group that wants to go in that direction.
1: Right. This is shattering one of the, I don't know, the five myths that uh, people believe that will lead them to the conclusion that mm-hmm. this simply can't happen. There are two forms of uh, fissile material, neither of which occur in nature, both of which are hard to make, but they're called highly enriched uranium and then the second one is plutonium. Now, in the case of a highly enriched uranium bomb, uh, with a hundred pounds of highly enriched uranium, so that's smaller than a football, uh, and the bomb design that was used for Hiroshima, which is such a simple design that it was never tested. The scientists were so comfortable and so confident in the design that they tested it by dropping it on Hiroshima. Uh, that could be made with material otherwise off the shelf in American electronic stores in a matter of months. And indeed, as Pre- President Bush uh, referred to this fact in the run-up to the war with Iraq when he said, if Saddam had a softball-sized lump of highly enriched uranium, he could make a bomb within a year. The answer is that was true. But it was also true of Al Qaeda or of other such groups. A, 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 high, a plutonium bomb is somewhat more difficult to make, but a but a highly enriched uranium bomb of Hiroshima design is unfortunately something that we've got now many demonstration cases of, you know, giving that as an assignment to master students in engineering from yeah. you know a normal school, and and they can do the rest. Now you're a formerly high level official
0: in our defense establishment, in our whole security establishment. And though you're no longer in the Pentagon where you were Assistant Secretary of Defense for plans, uh, you are uh, in that community, one of the leading people in that community, undoubtedly with very good lines of contact to people presently in government and in the intelligence community. What can you tell us, uh, that is beyond information you may hold that is privileged, what can you tell us about Uh, the intelligence concerning what Al-Qaeda and similar groups are up to in the pursuit of these weapons.
1: Well, in the the book, uh, I describe uh, Al-Qaeda and their nuclear ambitions. And I think no one who's looked at the evidence, either inside the intelligence community or in the information that's now become publicly available since 9-11, Uh, has any doubt that Osama bin Laden has been seriously seeking nuclear weapons for now more than a decade. What we don't know is whether he's been successful, and we have no evidence that he has succeeded, but the fact that he's been trying is a 100% agreed fact. In the 9-11 Commission report, they actually offer both some confirming uh, material about the conclusions I come to in the book, and also some additional pieces of information. So I don't think anybody doubts. As as Osama has said, he said, acquiring nuclear weapons is their religious duty. I describe in the book the visits of two of A.Q. Khan's associates from Pakistan Mm -hmm. with uh, bin Laden. A.Q. Khan was the father of the Pakistani H-bomb. He was also, as we've learned in the past year, a global black marketeer in nuclear services. Two of Aye. his two of the people that worked closely with him in his nuclear lab went to Afghanistan, to Osama's headquarters, and he Osama Wisdom about nuclear weapons. He even showed them some material he had bought from Uzbekistan, which he thought he could use to make a bomb. And they explained to him, "Nope, you got the stuff you got. It's not sufficient for a bomb." So he asked them, "Well, what did he need? And could he help? Could they help him find some more people who would be interested in 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 helping this project, particularly people who were ideologically sympathetic?" So. Uh, I don't think, again, there's any dispute among the community of people who've looked at this subject that al-Qaeda has been seriously seeking nuclear weapons. Having read your book, Nuclear Terrorism, the Ultimate
0: Preventable Catastrophe, what it's a brilliant book and it's inevitably gripping on every page, in every paragraph. It is, I should say, just published by Times Books, Graham Allison, Nuclear Terrorism. Having read that book... I hope that it is ultimately preventable, but I'm haunted, <coughs> and I put this to you just as we pause for some commercials, I'm haunted by the terrible anxiety that they've already got the stuff, and that uh, we can we can uh, lock the barn door, but the horse is already out, and or we can cap the bottle, but the genie is already out. And whatever metaphor one uses, the question is, do they already have that material? Particularly, might they have acquired it from uh, the former Soviet Union? We return directly to Graham Allison in pursuit of these matters after we pause for this. And we return directly to Graham Allison, director at Harvard of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and as well, professor of government at Harvard, former assistant secretary of defense, and author of the new book, Nuclear Terrorism, the Ultimate Preventable Catastrophe. Many, many years ago, Lord Byron, in *Child Harold's pilgrimage, says... A thousand years scarce serve to form a state. An hour may lay it in the dust. Do we face wow. the possibility of that hour coming?
1: Okay. very interesting and uh, a very good uh, good reminder uh, that that these uh, these subjects have a long uh, have a long history.
0: suitcase bombs exploded uh, in Chicago and New York and l a but essentially Wreck this country, would they not? Apart from killing millions of people.
1: Well, y- yes and no. And this is—I don't want to be be. Uh, 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 I mean, uh, uh, for those of us who are old coal warriors, I I worked in the Reagan administration for Secretary Weinberger. I was his special advisor when mm-hmm. Colin Powell was his military assistant. So this is back now, the mid 1980s. We worked on plans for a nuclear war and con- contemplated i remember working through this in the evenings in a, a nuclear war in which there would be thousands not not two or three thousands of nuclear warheads yeah. landing on soviet territory and we had to contemplate thousands of mm-hmm. of nuclear uh, warheads landing on american soil Th- that that would have been that was the armageddon in which i i actually could have ima- I, I i imagined every living american dying in short order, so that that was really catastrophic. Of course, one remembers if one or, or, that if if Herman Kahn,
0: yeah. Herman Kahn in his book Thinking About the Unthinkable, says we could survive a nuclear assault in which we lost 60 million people.
1: Right, and and let's remember, 50 million people died in World War II, and so if you said, would you rather be the survivors or the victims? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I think if one or two cities in America were destroyed uh, by bombs, Chicago and Boston, let's say. Uh, This would be horrible for you and me and for the people who live in these cities, but would America go on? Yes, but I think the question, what kind of America, what would we think of as freedom in America in a country in which people might blow up your city? And what would we think about America's role in the world and where we want anybody to be? I, just, I think it's, just, it's a place where, at that point, psychologically, it's hard to tell where we would go. Now, just
0: before we stop for commercials, I was noting that you give us in this book ways to lock the door so that nuclear uh, 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 bombs, nuclear warheads as such, or fish, uh, fissile material uh, cannot get into the hands of the terrorists. But... My dread concern is that uh, that may be locking the barn door after the horse is stolen. Hasn't? Isn't it quite possible that that material is already in the hands of terrorists, uh, or can be supplied to them by yet other operators, as for example those who run the North Korean program?
1: A- absolutely. Uh... so let me try to make plain what I mean by the proposition preventable. The part two of the book says nuclear terrorism is preventable it says there's a finite list of actions that if we took them, some of which we're not taking but which we could take, and if we took them nuclear terrorism could be prevented that would mean that, that addresses the problem of of all the potential for nuclear terrorism that hasn't already happened if any has happened and I pray it hasn't but it could and so if we if we if we heard this very minute that a nuclear bomb had gone off in Washington or Seattle I would myself not be shocked or surprised I would say this is a horrible horrible idea but if I go would go through the logic of how it could have happened I can easily get us there and indeed, as I say in part one, I think we're living on borrowed time with respect to it. So if a nuclear bomb or five nuclear bombs worth of material are already in Chicago or Boston or Washington, mm-hmm. as to those events, that th- th- I, I don't know how we're going to deal with that. I, I would say that the chances of our finding the bomb in Chicago, if it's here, absent specific intelligence information about who has it, is very, very low. So once it's here, it's like searching for a needle, uh, you know, in a haystack. And finding it when it comes across or penetrates our border, almost, almost impossible. The best place to lock down nuclear weapons and materials is at the source. The program that I... Described in the book, is a strategy for locking it down at the source and preventing any new production. But I would accept your your proposition that if a bomb or several bombs worth of nuclear material Mm -hmm. is already in the hands of Al-Qaeda and already in Chicago, the program that I'm talking about is not the solution to that. Let's do a quick sidebar before we talk about prevention on those bombs that may already be in Chicago or Boston or New York or wherever. What
0: form would they be
1: in? Well, there are two forms of bombs to worry about is that I deal with in the What chapter. One is a ready-made bomb. A ready-made bomb could be anywhere from a suitcase-sized bomb. The former Soviet Union had these suitcase bombs that weighed about you know, less than 100 pounds. You could put them in a backpack. The Americans had the same thing. We called them atomic demolition munitions. You put them in a backpack, one man can carry them and put them in a bridge and blow it up, or put them in a building and blow it up, or... The, uh, in the Soviet story, they had these Spetsnaz units, which would operate behind the lines if a war was going to occur, and they had them for blowing up the political leadership of a country or the, uh, or the military headquarters. So it could be one of these kind of bombs, or they could be a tactical nuclear warhead, uh, like in the book I tell the story of Dragonfire, where for several days the U.S. government actually believed. That there was a 10 kiloton weapon, that would be about as big as one of these large suitcase rollies that you see people, you know, with mm-hmm. at the uh, at the airport, uh, in New York City. So it could be the pre-made bomb. The second one would be a, a homemade bomb, or, in effect, a homemade bomb would be to get 100 pounds of highly enriched uranium. That's about smaller than a football, and then. Build the rest of it yourself, and that would be a bomb that would be about the size that would fit in the back of one of those vans that you see riding around uh, town with the, you know, you can't. There's the driver's seat, and then there's maybe I don't know eight or ten feet of just panel, Uh, Mm -hmm. and that the same kind of van that Ramsey Yosef, this uh, terrorist who tried to blow up the World Trade Center in nineteen ninety three, parked in the basement of the World Trade Center. So you would, it would be made by a terrorist, probably here in America starting with the football-sized lump of highly enriched uranium and then buying otherwise stuff from Radio Shack and Equivalent and putting it together uh, in a Hiroshima-style design, which is on the Internet.
0: Could we take as reassurance the following line of thought? Well, if they were here, they're probably not here, because if they were here, they would have been used already.
1: Well, I would say no, that should not give us comfort. I would say we we should be thankful uh, that something hasn't horrendous, hasn't happened already, but in the same way that before 9-11, a lot of people took comfort in the fact that, well, since nobody had ever done anything like that, they couldn't do it. Indeed, Condi Rice, when she was testifying to the 9-11 commission, said, who could ever imagine someone would hijack an airplane and crash it into a building? You imagined it in something
0: you worked up when you were in DOD. You listed 100 horrible possibilities, and that was one
1: of them. And that was not even in the top half of the horrible things, but there was this other man uh, who actually Produced a, be- a bestseller, a fellow named Tom Clancy. Yes, is I called know. Some of All Fears. So he actually there was a movie. In case people didn't yeah. want to read the book, we discussed so, that with Clancy on this program. Yeah, well, uh, you know, tens of millions of people have imagined this. They <laughs> actually <laughs> saw it in the movie, so this was not too hard to imagine. It just hadn't happened. Okay, and with respect to the nuclear bomb going off, I I'm glad. I'm I, as I say, I give thanks that no such thing has happened. But I think the fact that it hasn't happened shouldn't give us that much comfort. And indeed, now that we have. CIA warning uh, that there is going to be another major terrorist attack on the u.s maybe even before the election they think and you have uh, Osama having challenged the whole al-qaeda movement all these affiliates to trump 9/11 if you ask yourself well, what's on the list of things that trump 9/11 I mean they set the bar pretty high to start with and they're not that that long a list of things that that would uh, that would uh, meet that test mm. so And and you're convinced that if this stuff is already
0: uh, in this country, or for that matter, in uh, France or in Germany or wherever, uh, there's no way really to discover it and to cut the fuse, so to speak.
1: Well, the the bad news with respect to the uh, highly enriched uranium is if it's just uh, crudely shielded, for example, wrapped it in a camera bag, but you can go on the internet and find many ways to do it better than that. It's almost impossible to find just by looking, by randomly looking. Now, what you can do. And what the U.S. government has been doing and other governments, now that people have become more serious about the war on terrorism, is find the groups and the kinds of people who might want to do such things, watch, yeah. watch them when they're acting. And yeah. the reason why intelligence cooperation of other countries is so crucial in the war on terrorism is that the way those things are found is a local policeman... I mean, recently the mastermind for al-Qaeda in Asia was captured just the past year. How was he captured? A policeman in a Thai village noticed there was an Arab-speaking guy there who didn't seem to belong there, who was throwing a little money around. So he told the guys in uh, Bangkok, the guys in Bangkok told the intelligence if Thai, the Thai intelligence told CIA, CIA went and captured him. But the the chance of CIA finding this guy in a village in Thailand, zero. But meanwhile, uh,
0: the other persisting problem is that there's a lot of uh, uh, fissile or fissionable material still around in the world. There are many uh, nuclear warheads. Uh, The Soviets particularly have uh, got a vast number of them, uh, which uh, can't be fully accounted for. And there are other nations that are developing fissionable material by uh, their nuclear in their nuclear energy plants, and how do we lock the barn door at last so that whatever is still available does not get out and into the hands of the terrorists? We'll go, and you've developed a great program which you've titled in a sort of a Chinese way, the three nos. And we'll talk about the three nos. No. Directly, we return after this, and we return directly to Graham Allison. We're drawing from his utterly important book, and I should say it's also eminently readable, even though it will disturb you, but it may ultimately reassure you. uh, The title of the book being Nuclear Terrorism, The Ultimate Preventable Catastrophe, that's published by Times Books. Let's do a quick um, sort of survey or census of what's out there that uh, is potentially dangerous. What material, what kinds of warheads, and under what degree of control or lack of control?
1: Well, it's a big question. But let me go down them quickly. There's about eight and a half nuclear weapon states, so Russia's the big one. Russia and the U.S. between us have about 95 percent of all the problem to get it in perspective. But there's about 20,000 nuclear weapons assembled in some form in Russia, and enough material for about uh, let's say 60,000 more. Of that material and those weapons. they've been being secured with some U.S. assistance in the Nunn-Lugar program for now 13 years. We think about half of them are are adequately secured in Russia. You were the basic administrator of the Nunn-Lugar program when you were Assistant Secretary of DOD, weren't you? I was one of the uh, architects working to develop the program and its policies, and then I worked with its implementation with one of my close colleagues, uh, Ash Carter. Yes, And running back to the former Soviet Union
0: a great deal and getting them to, in the Ukraine and in Belarusia and so on, getting them to dismantle
1: the stuff and ship it back to Russia. Getting rid of the weapons, yes. One of the things that I uh, always will regard as one of my great opportunities was to participate in what was a fantastic recapture of 16,000 nuclear weapons, Hmm. 12,000 tactical nuclear weapons, and 4,000 strategic nuclear weapons that were sitting atop missiles aimed at places like Chicago and Boston when the Soviet Union disappeared. You remember back in December 1991, a whole whole nuclear superpower just disappeared. In its place emerged 15 newly independent countries. There were tactical nuclear weapons in 14 of those, and there were strategic nuclear weapons in four of them. By the end of the story, all those 12,000 weapons, and all those 4,000 strategic nuclear weapons, had got back to Russia, to the best of our knowledge. In the sense that, for sure, we've not found any, any of those weapons left out any other place at this point. But what has Russia done to them? Well, that's just as uh, one of my Ukrainian friends says. He says, "You keep talking about the good news, which is all mm-hmm. back in Russia, from your perspective. But the bad news, he says, is they're all back in Russia, where half of them are at risk." Actually, for the weapons that we returned, the strategic weapons that went back to Russia, they are being destroyed. So most people won't realize it, but for if you take the civilian nuclear power plants here in the U.S., half of the fuel rods, about half that go into these to make nuclear to make electricity from nuclear power in the U.S. are actually coming from Russia, which were those warheads which we got back from places like Ukraine. So there, a lot of it's getting burnt up. But that's in the Russian story. Then, in the case of the U.S., we have probably ten thousand weapons and enough material for another thirty or or thirty-five thousand. Uh, that's generally rather well secured. But and, some of the even what even in this country, some of it can be stolen. And there have been some incidents where theft has occurred. There, there been some. Well, when, when the no material. Uh, from which you could make a weapon has been successfully stolen from a facility. But when the facilities have been tested by our, uh, you know, as if they were terrorists, the groups that are seeing whether the system Mm -hmm. works, the systems have had repeated failures. And so at Los Alamos, which is one of our major facilities in New Mexico for making nuclear weapons, especially in the TA-18 area of it, where there's the most nuclear weapons. Every time there's been a test, the people who were the thieves have succeeded relative to the people who are the defenders. So a decision has been taken by Secretary Abrams only the last uh, three, four months to remove all the nuclear weapons and material from from that area of Los Alamos, because it was too dangerous. And I would say, if anybody can penetrate in order to steal stuff from the U.S., we should be moving our stuff up to a gold standard, more secure than we have, but I'd say relative to Relatively, ours is is reasonably secure. Then, then you have three more states, the traditional nuclear states, uh, France, uh, Great Britain, and China. That's the five. Then you have three that are kind of hanging out there in limbo, India, Pakistan, and Israel. And then you have the half, which is North Korea. So there's eight and a half places where Why do you, you could actually North get a bomb. Why do you make
0: North Korea a half
1: rather than a whole? Well, Don't they
0: have two or three warheads already?
1: What we know about North Korea is that they diverted enough uh, uh, spent fuels back in 1991 and 2, from which if they reprocess it effectively, they would have enough plutonium for one or two bombs. So CIA's estimate is in nineteen ninety the end of ninety two that they could have Mm -hmm. could have one or two bombs. Then unfortunately since January of two thousand and three, while we've been focused on Iraq, North Korea has not been sleeping. They took this as a free pass to be reprocessing more plutonium, so they announced, their deputy foreign minister announced in New York uh, just two days ago, that they had finished reprocessing all these 8,000 mm-hmm. rods. That's what he said. That would give them enough material for six more weapons. We don't have any independent confirmation of that, and the North Koreans are not generally a good source when they make statements about what's happening. North
0: Korea, if it has stuff, might very well, because maybe they're ruled by a crazy man, maybe because they've got strange, malign intelligence tensions towards us, but they might very well make some of that material available to uh, terrorist organizations. Uh, Iran, which clearly is on the verge of going forward uh, with a nuclear program that could generate uh, fissile material that could be used in weapons, Uh, they may be after weapons for themselves, and they could also make that material available to terrorists. Indeed, they run one major terrorist organization, Hezbollah. Uh, so there's a lot of instability
1: there. Oh, there? there is, and 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 you're exactly right. In the North Korean case, what we know about them is they're the most promiscuous proliferator on earth. Mm. They sell what they make to whoever will pay. They won't give it away, but they'll sell it. They've been selling missiles already. They've been they? selling missiles to anybody who'll pay, and they they also traffic in illegal drugs and in counterfeit $100 bills. That's the three cash crops, missiles, illegal drugs, and $100 bills. And they're an economic basket case. So I would say we should have every reason, every reason to believe that a North Korea that had a nuclear weapons production line and was producing enough material for its own arsenal and for others would be selling some of this stuff. So we come then, as
0: we should, to the great three the 3 no's proposition that you advance
1: and that you elaborate in the book Nuclear Terrorism. What are the 3 no's? Well, the the strategic narrow of this problem and the reason why nuclear terrorism is preventable in a way that, say, bioterrorism or other major terrorist attacks Mm -hmm. are not, is that unless, unless terrorists get either highly enriched uranium or plutonium, they can't make a nuclear bomb. So the happy fact of physics is no fissile material, no fission explosion. That's the blast that produces the mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. No nuclear terrorism. The three no's are first, no loose nukes. That means locking down all nuclear weapons and all nuclear material to a gold standard. Second, no, no new nascent nukes. No new national production of highly enriched uranium and plutonium, which is the stuff from which people can make a bomb. So we lock down the stuff that currently exists. We stop producing any new, and then the third one is no new nuclear weapon states. We draw a bright line under the eight, and we say to North Korea, no, there's not going to be a nuclear-armed North Korea with a nuclear weapons production line. what What do we say to Iran? To Iran, that's no new nascent nukes. Iran is within now months of finishing its facilities, its factories that will allow it to make highly enriched uranium and plutonium. We say no. There's a new line in the world that's going to say there's not going to be any new national production specifically it's not going to occur in iran now in the book i outline a strategy for trying to do the iranian problem right and i believe that one is for sure doable i've actually been working with a of a, a friend in the bush administration who usually teaches my course with me at harvard uh, bob blackwell who's the currently president bush's pro-consul for for iraq and i've told him bob leave iraq alone i don't know what you can do for iraq but for Iran, you can fix this problem. Well, let's look at that one particular uh, uh, illustration, then, of bringing pressure to bear. Use The use of carrot and stick, as you say. What do you do with Iran? Well, in the Iranian case, as opposed to the current policy, which we have, which is not clear what we want, we first get clear what we want. And I would say there's a lot of things I would like to have in Iran, but the one thing that I have to have is no nuclear weapons in Iran. Every possibility for life for the U.S., for Israel, for oil, with a nuclear-armed Iran is not good. So I'm going to just focus on one thing that I want from Iran, no nuclear weapons. So then I assemble all the carrots that I can imagine, all whole bundleful, and also the sticks that I need, the arsenal sticks. Yesterday, the
0: president uh, made a statement, pointed towards Iran, saying that we hold all options open, which is a way of saying, if necessary, we'll bomb your reactors
1: well i uh, some people would have some reservations about that i i would say that in the sticks category in my proposal we have to we have to be able to pose a credible military threat to these facilities and it could be by us or it could be by israel israel has said repeatedly that and Iran, that with nuclear weapons, is across its red line. And the Israeli defense minister said as, as, uh, as recently as the day before yesterday that Israel would itself take military action before this came into being. So it's a way of concentrating their mind. I don't want to attack them, but I don't mind persuading them. In terms of the carrots, here's what the deal would look like. What would Iran get? Iran would get the right to have a civilian nuclear power plant, the one that's being built by the Russians at Bushir, and even to buy more if they want to. Secondly, they could be they have an international guarantee of fuel for this reactor or any future reactors at half the price of what they could produce it. So they say they're wanting this highly enriched this enrichment facility in Iran in order to have fuel because they're worried about having fuel for their nuclear... Nope, international guarantee, you get it at half the price it would cost you to make it. So you can't have any economic incentive. And the, the spent fuel, which would otherwise be a waste problem for you, will go back to Russia where it's going to be stored for Iran. You're not going to have it in order to get the plutonium out of it either. You would also get additional trade and investments from Europe, which is... E- Eager to provide those, and you would get an assurance. Here's now the very important you'd get an assurance from the U.S. publicly that we will not attack you in order to try to change your regime. Now, what would you give up for Iran? You would give up the completion of these facilities for enriching uranium and reprocessing plutonium. So you would not be able to make uranium, and you would not be able to make plutonium. And if you can't make uranium and plutonium, you can't make a bomb. So we would, we would get a non-nuclear Iran. Not a good Iran. It would still be a mulocracy. They would still be nasty people that we don't like. We would have to wait for their regime to change at some point. But we wouldn't attack them, but they wouldn't have nuclear weapons. But they could still
0: sneak some fissionable material... Uh, to Al Qaeda and similar
1: outfits. It, only if they under... only if they get some. Only if they get the. They are now. Prevents this anymore. prevents them ever producing any. Now they might, they might buy some out of some other place and do some yeah. other transfer. That's another problem. But this would pre- prevent them ever producing any because they're now within months of completing these factories. Once those factories are running, there's no further bright, policeable line between them and nuclear bombs. Of course, this does assume, doesn't it, that essentially they are rational actors.
0: But uh, I don't think that Osama bin Laden, who's a Saudi, not uh, an Iranian, and who in fact is disavowed supposedly by Saudi Arabia as well, uh, I don't think he's a, a, quote, rational actor. They've got an overriding purpose, which is to assault the West and ultimately to dominate uh, in the world, for uh, to spread Islam through the world, which is the only way to purify the world. Uh, there was there were some pretty fanatic people who brought about the Iranian revolution. One remembers Ayatollah Khomeini. Sure, uh, he's gone, but some of his followers are just about as, um, as grotesque in their ambitions, I think, or at least one has to wonder whether they are. And if so, uh, will they settle for simply? Or the rational calculus involved when you add up the carrots and the sticks?
1: Well, it's a very good question, but I would say that watching this game now over the last several years, this mulocracy comes closer to the behavior of a rational actor than any of the other parties that have been involved in this mm-hmm. complex bargaining game. When the When the pressure goes up, they move. They cheat all the time, whenever they can get away with it, but when they get caught, they confess and then they you know, try to work otherwise. Do we do we assume that Kim Jong-il is also a rational actor? I would also say that, again, relative to other parties in this game, he's had in mind he wants to survive in power, mm-hmm. and he's been acting in a way that, as a first approximation, uh, if you wanted to predict what he would do, you would ask what a rational actor w- with his objectives would do. There is the
0: question of how we get other major nuclear powers, particularly uh, Russia. Uh, and China, to cooperate with us in this kind of international program. And we also address that, as we will when we return right after these words. And we return to Graham Allison, the director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. You know, I'm thinking back to the early, the whole question of proliferation of nuclear uh, weaponry. Uh, When uh, we first used those weapons and nobody else had them, uh, we anticipated that sooner or later the Soviets would get them, and they got them sooner rather than later. The British went forward to develop theirs, and then we were rather bothered when uh, Le Grand Charles, Charles de Gaulle, pulled out of, halfway out of NATO, and he launched France into uh, a kind of a crash program to develop his false de frappe, uh, a force of assault, uh, but The justification there was partly, well, we need this to defend ourselves and to maintain, but it was also, we need this to uh, build French, restore French glory and French significance. That really is the motivation of all sorts of other uh, rulers, tyrants or otherwise, isn't it? And aren't there lots of rising powers in the world that really also want to join the nuclear club because that's how you get uh, the rep on, on the block, so to speak?
1: A- absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Your recitation of the history is, is, is precisely right. And for de Gaulle, this was part of his grandeur, yeah. you know, as they thought about it. But the, the amazing thing, and I think mostly it's not appreciated appropriately. When John Kennedy was president, he said, and he was con- re- relaying the conventional wisdom, of the country, he said, there's going to be 20 or 30 nuclear weapons countries by the end of the 1970s. There's a statement in 1962. And that hasn't quite happened. Well, he he thought, and everybody thought then, that if states had the technical capability to get nuclear weapons, they would get nuclear weapons. But his prediction was made to try to say, but look at what kind of world that Mm -hmm. would be. And it motivated a serious action on the part of the U.S the Soviet Union and others, to prevent that happening. So the Non-Proliferation Treaty was was created, the Limited Test Ban Treaty, and as a result, there are now 184 countries in the world that have signed up for permanent d- renunciation of nuclear weapons, not having nuclear weapons. But that whole system, which is held back 184 countries, of whom 50 could have nuclear weapons within a year if they went for it, is now at risk of collapsing by the, if, if 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 Iran and North Korea puncture this set of constraints, then I think, and I think the person who runs the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, Mohamed al think, this mm-hmm. whole system is going to just come crashing down. If, for example, North Korea really went forward and developed some nuclear weapons and put them on intermediate-range
0: missiles, South Korea would have to, wouldn't they?
1: Absolutely, and you remember this uh, incident that in the news just uh, two weeks ago in which the South Koreans finally confessed that they mm. had done some laser isotope separation of uranium. They said it was an accident first, then they said it was just some rogue scientists. This is part of a hedge, in which case, if North Korea is going to have nuclear weapons, South Korea will go quickly, Japan will go quickly. The question of what will happen in Taiwan, very uncertain, particularly mm. given China's position, and in the East. Everybody whom I know who studies the Middle East says if Iran gets across this line, Egypt won't be far behind. Saudi Arabia will also move ahead. They probably won't make them themselves. They'll probably buy them. But they also have, already have a tight relationship with Pakistan.
0: But here, Graham, here's what worries or at least confounds me. Uh, the old logic concerning nuclear weapons, strategic theory, as it governed uh, the building and the display of nuclear weapons, was always: you build enough force so you can retaliate against the person who also has nuclear, against the state that also has nuclear weapons and has malign intent against you, and thus you get what Albert Wollstetter many years ago called the delicate balance of terror. Uh, but those are states, even if. Uh, those other states you've mentioned develop them they're still states looking at possible antagonist states or adversary states in their neighborhood and we know how to think about that how do you think about terrorists who are not states they may try to connect to some states to get some of their fissionable material but they're not they truly are not rational actors they are out for broke
1: well you're right on and I think they are too, too dot. distinguishing features about terrorists that make this an entirely different problem. First, a terrorist bomb explodes here tonight in Chicago, God forbid, and now we wonder, first, who did it? Mm -hmm. Now we get a website or a video broadcast from bin Laden, and he said, I did it. Whom do we retaliate against? Terrorists have no return address. Nice thing about states is, if North Korea launched a missile with a nuclear weapon against the U.S., mm-hmm. they would know, the person who pushed that button, that he was thereby signing the death warrant for everybody who lives in the state of North Korea. That would be finished, and that country would disappear. Would the U.S. do that? I believe it would. Republican, Democrat, President, I don't think it would make any difference. Okay? So a state is deterrable. Back to the logic of mm-hmm. you know of strategy, a country a, a terrorist who has no return address. If we knew where Bin Laden was, we would be there tonight. Okay. Secondly, as Bin Laden says, he and many of his followers love death more than Americans love life. Now, again, this is not the people we've been accustomed you know, to playing against in international politics. So I would say these are two features that make this a, a quite different challenge. And so when President Bush says "the the real threat is the most destructive technologies in the hands of the world's most dangerous actors, the most dangerous actors are the terrorists, the destructive technologies are nuclear weapons. So I think that's a correct statement. We are supposedly waging a war against terrorists
0: rather than a war against terrorism. Um, suppose we find bin Laden and assassinate him. That doesn't end the problem, does it?
1: Unfortunately not. I think there's two problems here. One is the means and one is the motive. In the case of nuclear terrorism, as my book is focused, I would say if we could deny terrorists the means for accomplishing their ambitions. So even if bin Laden is killed and the next guy wants to kill 4 million Americans, if he can't have the means to kill 4 million, you know, imagine he has to do this by trying to hijack airplanes and crash him into buildings. What happened on 9-11 was a horrible fact, and 3,000 people died, but it would take 1,400 such attacks. So they're not going to get 4 million that way. So if we could deny the means, we would have done a lot. Secondly, though, we need to work on the motive side. And you're certainly right that if we got bin Laden tonight, bin Laden has now become an icon for a whole movement. If you killed terrorists. him, he'd be replaced by 100 new rising bin ladens. Obviously. Well, and maybe, uh, fortunately, he seems to have a special inspirational capacity and an evil genius. and 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 certainly when we found this and captured this guy, Khaled Sheikh Mohammed, whom I describe in the book, the mm-hmm. fellow who planned 9-11. He was a brilliant organizational tactician. So you don't always, if you take out some of the nodes, they're harder to replace in terms of the competences. But I think now, sadly, uh, in part because bin Laden has played his hand well, in part because we played ours badly, he's now become iconic for large numbers of young men, and even women, but especially young men, in the Muslim population and Arab populations all around, all around the globe. So now you have th- these in- incredible situations in which there's a Muslim population in Nigeria. A Nigerian guy came to see me recently about this. These guys are thinking that Americans and Israelis, the, what they call the Jewish Christian Crusaders, are a military threat and are going to attack Muslims in Nigeria. So I asked the guy, I said, wait wait a minute, What? what I didn't even know about these Muslims in Nigeria. I said, well, what are they, do they know where Israel is? No, he said, no, but they hear on TV and they hear in these things that Israelis and Americans are doing horrible things, and then occasionally they see a TV picture with something happening in Iraq or Palestine, and they say, this is, Bin Laden tells them, this is what these guys are going to come and do to you. And he says, it's a in their, in Nigeria, you know, so this well, they're, guy, they're recruiting people everywhere with a propaganda, which yeah. has been done very well, and we are, in too many instances, not being smart enough, and so we, our behavior looks like, to them, it's validating this this kakamemi stuff that bin Laden has put now, out. There
0: are three major uh, tribal entities in Nigeria, the Igbo, the Yoruba, and the Hausa. The Hausa are the Muslims, as mm. I remember it. Right. So we have to penetrate Hausa life, and... Get some strong intelligence about what they're up to.
1: Well, but we mean we, we, but also yes, we do. But I would say that, that that's have a, that's working the symptom. We ought to also work the problem and ask ourselves what in the world could lead people in Nigeria to come thinking that Americans are military threats to them. You're for... suggesting that part of our uh,
0: approach in all of this is not only to secure fissionable material. But try to affect some of the main currents in contemporary Islamic thought.
1: Absolutely. How would you go about that? Well, i I, I think as the nine eleven commission report says the that the Bush administration doesn't have a strategy for a big comprehensive strategy mm. for war and terrorism, and true. And even the nobody else seems to have a very good version of it as well. But in the Cold War, one of the most uh, effective things that was done was that people understood this was not simply a military war. It was crucial that never could the Soviets roll up us militarily. But in the end, we undermined communism by getting inside their heads and helping them understand that what communism represented and what these theories that Marx and Lenin tried to persuade people of were actually crazy ideas and ideas that didn't work and that failed. And so I think this this uh, it sounds mushy, but the battle for hearts and minds mm-hmm. was never far from the minds of Kennan and the people who worked out the strategy for the Cold War. What we need with respect to trying to, to address this overall problem of terrorism is to ask ourselves, What is it that's that's? What are the factors that are making more people think this is what they want to do? And what do we have to do with those factors? And what could we do to undermine uh, such uh, views? Because if there's, you have what huge bulging populations of young males in lots of these Muslim societies. With unemployment rates of forty or fifty percent, so they're wondering what do they do? What do young males do in any society? They raise hell. I mean, I can remember when I was that age, and you can remember in yours. Okay, so I mean, these are gangs in America or other such things, especially people who don't have have some other thing to do. So if we're not if we're not about the task of helping them see why this kind of activity and these these ideas are self-defeating and destructive for themselves and their society. We're not going to, in the long run, be successful. We pause
0: in a few minutes for a quick round of commercials and then on to the phones. And we're opening the lines right now for any questions you want to raise in conversation with Graham Allison. The number, as ever, is five nine one seven two double zero, five nine one seventy two hundred. For any question you want to raise, or for that matter, any thought you want to share, move quickly and. We'll be getting to the phones shortly. If you are listening to us on the Internet at some greater distance and would rather communicate via email, the email address is extension720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. Uh, A last question. Your book, before we go to to the commercials and then the phones, your book is after all about nuclear terrorism. That is the title. What about other modes of terrorist assault, chemical and biological, which we 've worried about a good deal? They are easier to, easier to mount and easier to disperse, aren't they?
1: Yes, and I would say the chances of additional major terrorist attacks on America are one hundred percent whatever we do on every 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 set of circumstances that doesn't mean we shouldn't work on them and we shouldn't work on them with great uh, you know, uh, energy the the ultimate catastrophe the thing that would kill 500,000 people in an instant at times square or here in chicago mm-hmm. uh, at the Sears in the middle of a of a of a work day uh, a couple of 100,000 people depending on how how densely they were packed in an instant is nuclear only but biological big and bare and very What's global. the
0: worst damage that can be done by by biological and or chemical well, means.
1: the ch- ch- chemical I think doesn't really deserve to be in this in this lit. Doesn't it disperse down, well. does It it's, It doesn't disperse well, and it doesn't. Uh, it, it it I would put it down. It's more like mm-hmm. things that happened on nine eleven. Those I mean, remember nine eleven was one of the worst days we've had in American history. So I'm not demeaning that. I'm just saying it's in the in that yeah. in that zone. In the biological case, again, a well crafted biological terrorist attack could indeed kill hundreds of thousands of americans but 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 i think if we worked harder than we've done so far in having vaccines and in having therapeutics so like cipro for people that were exposed to anthrax and if we had organized the public health system and and medical system to be able to deliver those services to them when we needed them then we could reduce the number of deaths from that to a, to a, uh, to a, to a much more acceptable level. So I would say on bio, I don't imagine we could stop bioterrorist attacks, but I think we can stop them from being massively destructive.
0: With that, a quick round of commercials and then on to the calls. At the moment, I see all the lines are taken. If you're trying to reach us, you're getting the busy signal, but do continue to try, especially after we say goodnight to a prior caller. Five 591-7200, the number, and we'll be on to your calls and or email directly after these words. Our producer, Maggie Burnt, has been editing the calls as they come in, and as usual, not everybody makes the cut. So there are now, again, one or two lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, do try again on 591-7200. And with that, we'll go to the first caller, and uh, here is that first caller. Good evening.
2: Uh, Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I'd like to hear more information about uh, the Russian role in this, you know, the subject we're talking about. And uh, you know, number one, why is Russia building a nuclear power plant with Iran? I mean, with with Bush's supposed good relationship with Putin, why isn't he cannot prevail upon him to stop that? <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I also wanted to hear him speak about you. Know, you hear a lot about the Russian mafia, and is that something we really need to be feared about? Is whether they would be inclined to sell
1: that material to terrorists? Very uh, good questions. Uh, let me take them piece by piece. I think the the first uh, fact is that for whatever combination of reasons, uh, Russia hasn't seized uh, clearly enough uh, its own uh, national interest in not having Russian weapons or materials potentially stolen by terrorists. And whenever I talk to Russians about this, I say to them, think about these Chechen terrorists that killed the kids at the Beslan school just now a month ago. Uh, if these people get a nuclear bomb, they're not coming to New York. They're coming to Moscow. So think about your own interest in assuring that the weapons and materials are locked down to the to the tightest possible standard. And I think we need to, we need to help them in that respect, but they need to wake up to this fact. And I try to work on that when I'm working on uh, with Russians, which I talk to, you know, very regularly. Secondly, on the Iranian proposition, basically a Ru- uh, Russia sold to Iran a nuclear power plant. Actually, the Germans sold that same plant first, but then they didn't complete it, and so the Russians came in after, just as a commercial venture. The enterprise that makes nuclear power plants likes to sell nuclear power plants, and so they're selling it to them for financial reasons. And per se, Iran having a nuclear power plant, like the nuclear power plants, a 100 of which exist here in the U.S., are not per se the problem the u.s. has kind of got fixed on that and i think in the clinton administration spent too much time and energy talking about that nuclear power plant which we we should be concerned about is they're not getting nuclear weapons thirdly your mafia point is certainly right russia is still a highly criminalized society fortunately the mafia groups have not got into trafficking in nuclear things so far but but
0: how about disaffected military we've read for some years that there are very disgruntled former generals who've got some access to some of those uh, some of those suitcase bombs and maybe other material.
1: Absolutely. I think there's no question that the Russian military went through the greatest status devaluation mm-hmm. of a military absent a, 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 you know flat defeat in a war ever in history, and that quite a lot of generals who would otherwise be living better off have gotten uh, pushed out. Uh, a reasonable number of KGB and security types have gotten pushed out. Uh, and haven't been all that successful in other lines of work. So there are plenty of folks in this society who do know about nuclear weapons and who do know who who would potentially have access to nuclear weapons. And so again, that's all the more reason in my view, for Bush or whoever is president uh, but if he he should do it today, but if it's not Bush, it's Kerry uh, sitting down with Putin immediately and saying, mm-hmm. We should agree jointly to lock down all weapons and materials to a gold standard. U.S. doesn't lose any gold from Fort Knox. Kremlin doesn't lose any treasures from the Kremlin Armory. So we know how to lock down things we don't want people to steal. Let's do it on the fastest, humanly technical, feasible timetable. All right, thanks to the caller for a valuable question. We'll go directly to another on
0: 5917200. Good evening.
2: Uh, Gentlemen, good evening. Uh, About 25 years ago, um, there was a novel written about... uh, the, you know, uh, Muslim extremists, uh, terrorists, uh, having a, planting a thermonuclear bomb in New York City called The Fifth Horseman, a novel by uh, Larry Collins and Dominic uh, Lapierre, and what was interesting about that, actually in many ways it's very dated, uh, because it talks about Jimmy Carter being president, and the, and the threat was from Gaddafi, but it talked about how they would be Able to, with Western technology and the fact that a lot of the Arab uh, scientists have been trained in the US, in the West, be it the U.S. or Europe, you know, are able would be able to create a thermonuclear bomb. And that doesn't even assume that they'd be able to buy one either from Korea or from you know one of the Soviet you know former Soviet republics or somebody in the Soviet Union. But it talks about how easy it would be to get a bomb into the U.S and it'd be, it'd be extremely easy because these things are take like a three megaton thermonuclear bomb, you know, it fills up the size of a, um, you know, 55-gallon oil drum. So we, and, and I think the whole thing about MAD and, and our whole deterrence has been determined on the fact that we want to live and the Russians want to live. You know, we're feeling, we're facing now an yeah. enemy that mm-hmm. doesn't want to live, they want to die.
0: You know, uh, shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, a friend and colleague, uh, excellent and important, Uh, security studies, political scientist, namely John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago, did an article which uh, I think was headed, You're Going to Miss the Cold War. It was much simpler in structure than what we face now, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. And Mearsheimer uh, is a person whom I know and admire, and he's uh, always provocative, and there's no question whatever that there was a little bit more structure and order to things uh, back in the Cold War days. Though we should also remember that we were then facing the prospect and actually, I worried I mean, realistically about the possibility of a, a nuclear war, which might have killed all Americans, and the likelihood yeah. of that is mercifully receded. This Fifth Horseman and, and the Collins scenario, I remember only vaguely, so I need to go back and look at that. But I think to the extent that the, uh, that the caller points out that the, the issue is getting things into the U.S. In my book, I have a chapter called How. How would they get it here? When I started that chapter, I thought of three ways. Then I thought of 13, then 30, then I kept going. The answer is, just let me count the ways. But I organized it into two sections. I call it Follow the Golf Clubs and Follow the Drugs. If you have any doubt about the ability of terrorists to bring a bomb to Chicago or New York, they could always hide it in a bale of marijuana, which we know is delivered there regularly. Tons and tons of it every day. Tons and tons.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, if you look, the fact that the Mexican border is totally wide open and Mexico is totally corrupt, the fact that you could have a any kind of a any kind of a freighter drop. A, you know, sh- just pull into any kind of a port and just, you know, ship something off. And not to mention the the millions of, o- of ocean-going containers that come into the United States every year that, that only like 1% or 2% are ever inspected, and none of them are really inspected to the point of taking them out and really looking at them. I mean, we are totally wide open, and if we have an enemy who is willing to sit there and, and recruit somebody who is going to sit next to the bomb and, and pull the trigger, which these guys are willing to do. I mean, they're, they're willing to strap a bomb around their chest and walk into a bus and pull, the, and, and pull a pin, they're certainly going to be more than happy to uh, sit enough. But, of course, the up. answer,
0: Graham, that you've given to all of this is that you can't control it at that level. You control it at the level of uh, uh, not allowing fishnable material out into the Absolutely. world. Absolutely,
2: and I think yeah. that the United States should simply tell Iran that you will not, you will cease and desist today or your country will cease to exist tomorrow.
1: Well, I don't think you have to go that far, but I the 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 fact that there needs to be a credible military threat as part of the package of carrots and sticks for Iran seems to me right, and I think you'd, the proposition that says, in the case of Iran, these factories which are just about to complete within months of completing, are not going to turn on and operate because they're not going to be allowed to. And produce don't you have to do that?
0: Give that threat sooner rather than later.
1: You, bet. If you wait And if they get a, a nuclear weapon or two, then
0: wow. if you hit them, they will probably, on the basis of sheer uh, uh,
1: fanaticism, or sheer rage, they will retaliate. Maybe not just sheer for that of rage, but revenge and so, revenge. as such. The answer: yeah. No. The neither the problem of Iran nor the problem of North Korea has gotten better in the past four years. They've gotten worse. They haven't got better in the last month. They've gotten worse. So, so every as, month, yeah. every month, these problems are harder to deal with. Our thanks to the caller, as Macbeth says, "If it were done,
0: twere well. It were done quickly, quickly, very quickly." Exactly. We pause. A quick round of speaking of quickly, a quick round of messages, and then directly back. And directly back to Graham Allison. And let me offer you another quote, Uh, somebody you may well have known during your Washington years. I had him on this program twice, as a matter of fact. The former director of the CIA, uh, William Colby, who said way back in 1991, I think it's a bloody miracle that one of these eggs has not gotten loose in the last 40 years. The subject of control over nuclear weapons is so awful a problem that there aren't any real solutions to them, and you can't relax about it at all. And he's talking at a time when we didn't yet have the terrorist threat uh, in the form that we now know it. He's talking about nations. Uh, Should we worry more or less than we worried in those days of the Cold War?
1: Well, I would say uh, less about the... Armageddon that kills everybody, yeah. and more about the prospect of one or two weapons going off in our city. So
0: it won't be Herman Kahn's wargasm, which right, destroys yeah, the world.
1: Right. This is just the loss of a city or two, yeah. which would be, again, unbelievably bad. But
0: quite apart from the millions killed uh, or dying slower deaths, there would also be a transformation
1: of the, of the society left over. Absolutely, in which in which the question I mean I've often said if if this one nuclear terrorist bomb goes off in an American city, I'm gonna redouble my efforts because in fact some of the pessimists tell you to me, you know, this nobody's gonna motivate this agenda until we have a yeah. real wake up call. Mm. Americans just don't wake up until till after a call. But if there's a second bomb goes off in an American city I'm going to uh, move to Colorado and go fishing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think, and I think cities are going to be much less attractive places for people to live, and civilization is going to change in a way that we just can hardly imagine. Exactly. Let's go back to
0: the phones. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Just from a practical point of view, what would be the effect on our war on terrorism if we were to decouple ourselves from Israel?
1: Well, uh, an interesting question. I would say that the it's certainly very complex. Uh, there's no question that uh, we've—well, uh, bin Laden has been playing a, fa- a, a fas- facile hand, uh, imaginative, mm-hmm. and we've oftentimes fallen into uh, his traps, I think, uh, in that now—I was in the Middle East uh, several months ago. And in one of the uh, networks, not Al Jazeera, but another one that's even more irresponsible, they run split screens in which on the one side you see Israelis with uh, some tanks or even F-16s killing Palestinians and crushing houses Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, uh, people and often children. And then on the other side of the screen, you had Americans with their tanks crushing into Fallujah, and, uh, and uh, killing some civilians, and again, children. And they get the best footage of this that's most horrific that they can. And they play it over and over and over. So it all looks like it just happened yesterday. So they t- the the news story is, is this: is what's happening instantaneously, but then the pictures come from whenever they have the best version. And what they're doing is saying this is all part of the same picture. I think the the fact that the Israeli Palestinian peace process has collapsed and that the American administration has basically walked away from it and said you guys solved the problem, but it's gotten worse, uh, is uh, a, a a real sore and though i don't think it's the primary motivation it certainly heats people up and it gives them something to uh, to focus upon so i think that's a big negative but i think that the uh, if, if israel and the palestinians had made peace which they should and i think that would help significantly i still think bin laden and his objectives uh, for america would remain uh, undiminished And he would still be pursuing us. So we would have a big war on terrorism in any case. And preventing terrorists acquiring nuclear weapons would be a big challenge for us in any case. But we should remember the uh, terrorists who killed the most Americans up till 9-11... Uh, was a American veteran named Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City with homegrown materials. So there are deranged people everywhere in the world. There are a lot of them who are going to hate America, sometimes for what we are, but frequently for what we do. And a 800-pound gorilla, as big as we are in the world today, there's always going to be seeming to offend mm. somebody. So I think we need to deny them the means to achieve their grandest ambitions, and then we need to work very hard on the motives. You know?
0: All right. Thanks to the caller. We have to remember what Murphy told us: if anything can go wrong, it will. And there's a great deal that will go wrong in this world.
1: Thank exactly. uh, you.
0: Remember, in the old days when strategic theory was sort of the dominant game, that uh, they talked some. Some people talked of the uh, the prudential standard, or worst-case analysis. Imagine the worst that might happen and act as if it is likely to happen, in the possibility maybe of preventing it.
1: Well, I, I would say that we don't want to be, the, 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 this, I say yes, recognize that horrible, horrible things happen, that there really are people that want to kill lots of people, that when they say they want to kill 4 million people, and you say, well, that's incredible, I'm not going to believe it, I'm old enough, and you are, to remember yeah. Better uh, that, believe there was, that there yeah. was a time when people didn't believe anybody would kill millions of sure. people. Indeed, it was going on for a long time and people said, oh, this couldn't be happening. This is too horrible. But things like horrible things happen. We can know, know this from history. So the, 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 if, if this is preventable by a finite list of actions that are affordable and feasible and doable, then, if we fail to take those actions, I would say, huge shame upon, upon us. I mean, it, so it, it, for, for a, for a, for a for society of thinking people who can look at 9-11 and look and see what Osama bin Laden has told us he wants to do, and look at the ways in which he could do it, to fail to take every action that's technically feasible to prevent this, or if we fail... To have failed for to not not to be able to say to ourselves and our government, not to be able to say to us as citizens, <laughs> it wasn't for the absence of anything we could physically or technically have done that this happened. It was already out of the barn, that one or this, but that everything mm. we could have done, we did. I mean, it seems to me it's it's grossly irresponsible.
0: Now, what's happening along those lines? Uh, we've got your three no's, and they make a good deal of sense. And you've been talking in these terms even before the book was published. And you're not alone. You are one of the leading people in a sort of strategic or security affairs community who, uh, and the members of that community, talk to each other a great deal and to opposite numbers in other countries. Uh, is there now developing a readiness to go at this problem in these terms?
1: well, I, I I believe that the people who've taken the time to look at it come virtually unanimously to the conclusion that this is a huge threat, mm-hmm. and that there's a large number of very specific things we could do, and the problem is just doing them and getting them on getting on with them. And I think that uh, as I've gone around the current administration to talk to friends in it, I worked in the in the earlier administration for Reagan, as I mentioned, so I have talked to everybody at the Defense Department up to Secretary Rumsfeld about this issue. I've talked to everybody at the State Department, up to Secretary Powell, whom I worked with uh, on this issue. I've talked to the folks at the National Security Council, up to Condi Rice, whom I knew as an academic and whom I like uh, very, very much. Unfortunately, and this is a whole other story, but unfortunately, after we made such a great start on the war on terrorism, from my perspective, and took down the terrorist training camps in Uh, Afghanistan, which should have been taken down before. That was a big failure in the Clinton administration, in my view. But after that, we then, for whatever combination of reasons, went off to Iraq. Where we should have gone, in my view, is to war against nuclear terrorism and to this agenda. And I tried, and I spoke to folks in the administration saying, here, this is actually what I think we should do. I even gave him this version of the doctrine of free nose. I said, you know, if President Bush wants to give this speech and you want to go with this, you're never going to hear a word from me about it. I'm going to say just fantastic, except I'll cheer. Okay. Uh, I think that what Iraq has done is, whatever you think about the pros and cons of Iraq is another story, but what Iraq has done with respect to this agenda, it's basically sucked all the oxygen up so mm-hmm. that anything else that, that's, that requires difficult uh uh, steady work uh, it, that, you, that you're not already doing is uh, been basically too hard for people to do.
0: Well, we might hope then that
1: uh, if Iraq stabilizes
0: and if their elections come off and if uh, the insurgency is finally brought under control by combined American and Iraqi forces, that maybe we can return our attention to these matters.
1: Absolutely, and I think what what I'm hoping is that we don't have to wait for a nuclear wake up call to yeah. say oh wait a minute that I would certain, now, now i need, need to get my that eye would back on the right ball that yeah. would certainly do it that it? would do it yeah, yeah. Uh, we pause the last
0: round of commercials then right back to the phones i see now one or two lines are available if you've been trying to reach us do make another quick try and somebody will get through on 5917200 and we go directly back to the phones for your calls to graham ellison on 5917200 good evening Uh,
1: Good evening. I was wondering if uh, Professor Graham knew if the United States had had any success developing the technology to find nuclear weapons using their distinctive neutrino emission? Very good question. Uh, There are now uh, under development a number of technologies for trying to improve the ability to detect uh, nuclear weapons or uh, fissile material when it's, you know, hidden. The problem is that it's still uh, technology advantages the hiders versus the seekers. But uh, there are uh, serious efforts going on at uh, both both Los Alamos and Livermore that I know about, and also in a number of commercial ventures in which people are trying to find ways to do better, oftentimes not by simply a neutrino uh, admitter detector, but by in effect cross uh, uh, signaled, uh, sort of information in which the same device would be both doing a little x-ray, would be looking for gamma rays, mm-hmm. would be looking for other emissions, all of that against the backdrop. And the very great difficulty in dealing with it is that so many of the other materials give off some degree of uh, emissions that Uh, you get a lot of false positives. But I have no doubt that that technology is going to improve significantly, and I'm very much in favor of investment in it. Thank
0: you. We thank you, sir. Uh, A quick query from uh, via email. If the United States is hit with a nuclear terrorist attack, what is our response? Do we return nuclear fire against a similar Islamic target?
1: If we don't know who did it, as I said, uh, this becomes a very difficult problem. Uh, It's the issue of, well, as I say, no no return address. Imagine, again, the nuclear bomb goes off in Chicago tonight. So the president, obviously, is determined and the society's determined that this is not going to stand, that these bastards are going to pay. Well, what about going to that area
0: on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, the northern tribal territories in Pakistan, where we presume bin Laden and his crew are basically located.
1: And we are presumably searching there tonight, because you can be sure President Bush has said, all out alert. Yeah. capture this guy Bin Laden if you could now. So we could go there and look harder. But I presume we we're looking pretty hard tonight.
0: But you could attempt a nuclear assault well, on that yeah, area. I guess you could kill.
1: You could destroy a whole territory and area, yeah. in, including the innocent people who happen to be there. We couldn't
0: bring ourselves to do that. I, well, we might. We
1: might. I mean, in the Cold War, we certainly thought of killing lots of innocent people in yeah. retaliation for an uh, for an official attack. But but if it were if it were not at all connected to the attack and if it, if we weren't clear that it was going to reduce future attacks if it was just a just an act of of uh, random uh, vengeance uh, it's hardly expressing in the values of the, you know our country and what we want to represent Seems and, and it doesn't seem relevant. to doesn't yeah. seem to be accomplishing anything
0: yeah. back to the phones 5917200 you are on the air good evening
1: Hello, Dr. Elson, what do you
2: think is the probability that one or more nuclear suitcase bombs have already been smuggled into the country? And, and can I ask you one other thing is what,
0: what is the range of these gamma emission detectors? In other words, do you have to be within feet of the emission or can you be within a city block? What is the range of detection?
1: Okay, two, two good questions. On the second one, you have to be up close, but again, the technologies are developing. These are all just matters of uh, the, st- the current state of technology, and fortunately, technology is dynamic, and American society is very inventive, and so with research into these areas, I have no doubt that things will improve. I think the real problem here is just the the hider the versus the Seeker, that the technologies for sheathing and therefore for disguising uh, are easier than the technologies for finding on, on the on the suitcase nuclear weapons. I described this in the book. Uh, there's the former uh, national security adviser to President Yeltsin of Russia, uh, Mr. Lebed or General Lebed. He acknowledged at one point that 84 of these uh, suitcase bombs were unaccounted for. Then there was a whole set of denials by the Russian government, and then they said there was uh, no such weapons. They never made them. Then they said they were all. Accounted for. Then they said they had all been destroyed, and then, so I traced the story further. And new information comes out about this from time to time. Uh, I don't think uh, we. I don't think we know, and I don't think they know whether all of them were fully accounted for. Indeed, one of their former heads of the 12th Gumo, who are the group that's responsible for tracking these things, acknowledged again in response to some inquiries I, my group, set out, that these suitcase bombs didn't have on them individual serial numbers, so they didn't have individual identifying numbers. Therefore, the ability to tell whether you got them all back or not is a little, you know, fl- flimsier than, than it would be with respect to most nuclear weapons. But I, if I had to bet it, I would bet that there's only, you know, less than one percent chance that actually one of these weapons in the hands of some uh, terrorist group has got its way into America, less than one percent, but it's certainly not zero.
0: Why do you think it's so low, given all the uncertainties and the, the, in a way, market for these that um, I think you have described?
1: Well, that's a good question, and I'm just giving you my gut judgment. I don't know for sure, but I would say that the the fact that we haven't found any such weapon, and that it, we know for sure it hadn't been used, because that would be a hundred percent we know. We know we hadn't found it. We've certainly been looking, Ah, uh, but but if it had been brought here and put in a used storage, you know, you certainly wouldn't find it. Okay.
0: What estimates do we have on that very question from our own intelligence agencies?
1: Well, the CAA's best estimate is that uh, some nuclear weapons material uh, has gone missing in Russia. Some, but they don't have an estimate of the amount, and they don't have the est- estimate of where, where where it is. And we know that we continue to find material from time to time when thieves attempt to sell it. So for example, there's a story just out uh, two days ago in uh, Kyrgyzstan where some plutonium uh, from which you could make bombs was for sale and the people were captured. So we have repeated instances in which material of of the type that terrorists would want if they were trying to make bombs have somehow been stolen by some thief and is being stolen, you know, sold to somebody, and we capture the guy or we find it. But what we don't know is what we haven't found.
0: Our thanks to the caller. Time is short. Let's go quickly to another. Good evening. You're on the air.
2: Yes. Uh, good evening, Dr. Rosenberg. Would you just to follow up on uh, your guest's last, last comments, uh, what um, would you think would be the, the best means of... Um, Uh, tracking um, any such nuclear uh, weapons? Uh, For instance, would you be in favor of racial profiling? And what about our still somewhat open borders and also the uh, ships that are coming into the country? And I just heard that uh, uh, Walmart has about 83 ships waiting in the the ports in in California with their Christmas merchandise uh, with um, checking the um, cargo that's coming into the country. What would you advise?
1: Well, good question. They, as I say in the book, the place to lock down nuclear weapons and materials is at the source. As Sam Nunn says, Every the, the source is the point at which it's easiest for the defenders and hardest for the terrorists. Every mile you get away from the source, it becomes easier for the terrorists and harder for the defenders. Once you get to our borders, I think as an earlier uh, 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 caller pointed out, I mean, the, the U.S. borders are basically don't work. We're a state that has very porous borders. There was a quite good Time Magazine cover story just the week before last on this, in which they quote people from the uh, Homeland Security Department estimating that twice as many people came illegally into the country across the Mexican border last year than before 9 11. Twice as many, so more than 3 million. We know that people come, I mean, here, how how many ways do people get drugs to Chicago? You know, through the Great Lakes, uh, through the Canadian border, uh, Mm -hmm. in Federal Express packages, Mm -hmm. uh, in these cargo containers, as you say, from from Walmarts. Fewer than 5% of these cargo containers are even open. So we need to go to the source and lock it down there. That's the point where we have the maximum leverage. But I'm in favor, myself, of having borders. I think a country needs to have borders and of having every layer of detection that we can manage as the technologies develop
2: mm-hmm. what about racial profiling in oh. the, in the uh, instance that there are already um, uh, such uh, devices here already
1: well it, i mean I, in general obviously r- racial profiling raises a whole whole different set of issues mm-hmm. if, if we knew for example that somebody had brought a bomb to chicago and it was reported that the person who had done it was a uh, male uh, Arab uh, about of age about 25, I would myself not have reservations about going, about trying to look at males of, of that age. I would say that the, so the fact that I was using some racial or ethnic uh, feature because that was the suspect wouldn't lead me to, to hold off from, from doing it. Ma'am, thank you for the call. Do you remember the words that Robert
0: Oppenheimer uttered as he watched the first test nuclear explosion in Alamogordo? I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, a quotation from the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, since they let that genie out of the bottle, since we got nuclear weapons, that's transformed everything about our common existence. And it will go on being uh, our great preoccupation from here to I don't know where. To, Possibly to, to infinity.
1: I think to infinity, but I think that the uh, wonderful news is that, uh, God uh, be thanked, and no such nuclear bomb has gone off in an American city. And mm-hmm. they, since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, no such weapon has been dropped in anger. And I think what we need to now do is to determine we're going to prevent this happening here. Uh, uh, and your new book, Nuclear Terrorism The Ultimate
0: Preventable Catastrophe, is certainly a significant contribution uh, to trying to cap that danger and prevent it from turning into an actuality. I thank you very much for joining us, Graham.
1: Thank you very much for having me.